John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be digging a little bit deeper into the Library of America's four-volume anthology on the American Civil War. Um, There is basically one volume for each year of the war, and it collects documents from many different points of view. Um, That's what I like about it. It's not like the deepest dive you could ever get into the American Civil War, but it, it does give a really nice broad over, overview. The editors did a really good job of choosing documents that I think express different people's points of view during the war, different regional perspectives, um, different racial, different uh, gender points of view, um, politicians, soldiers, etc. So we get a really nice mix. So that's the value of this anthology, as I talked about in the last episode. Um, and we're just going to kind of go deeper into this text and see where it takes us. Um, the documents we're going to look at today cover the period basically from December 1860 until the inauguration of Abraham Lincoln. I will cover his inaugural address in the very next episode. Um, as always, I, I read these about 100 pages at a time and, and frame my episodes around that. So anyways, um, let's let's go into it. it. Anyways, obviously, what's in the first 100 pages of documents we looked at, the real question was whether, uh, what would be the consequences of Lincoln's election on, um, on the State of the Union, right? Um, and we looked at, you know, different points of view, including uh, President Buchanan's last State of the Union, actually, which I found a pretty hilarious document. Um, but we also see points of view of people seeing the buildup to secession in the South take place around them. Um, what we're going to see in this set of documents is really the, the actual achievement of secession by, by the ruling class in the South, how that was achieved through state conventions, you know, and then that kind of leads into this ongoing debate of just how democratic these conventions were. Did they really reflect the will of the Southern people overall? Were they pushed forward rapidly by a small minority of people and kind of uh, forced upon a population that was ambivalent? Of course, we got to consider when we think about this, how democratic these conventions were, the fact that a big chunk, like a third of the Southern population couldn't vote. They couldn't participate in these in any way um, because they were uh, um, slaves. Um, and of course, even beyond that, half the population couldn't participate at all either because they were women. So um, not very democratic, I think we can agree. But um, how it was done, how these conventions were done were there, were, were going to be the theme of this episode, I suppose. And then the different points of view of people who respond and watch it and are observing this. We're also going to get uh, a series of documents that speak to the situations, particularly in Charleston, which makes sense because that's where the Civil War really begins. The first secession movement takes place in South Carolina, and of course the, the first uh, overt violence of the war takes place in, in Charleston at Fort Sumter. So kind of this, how that was set up is, is revealed in some of these documents. So anyways... Um, we start with a December 1860 letter, essentially, to John A. Gilner, 
um, who is from North Carolina. Um, of course, North Carolina secedes after Fort Sumter, right? It's one of the, the states that didn't secede right away. Um, and he writes Abraham Lincoln basically for confirmation about his views on on slavery, right? This is, um, and basically, uh, this Gil, Gilmer guy seemed to really doubt Lincoln's conservatism, his public conservative stances on the issue of slavery. Of course, this is pretty well known about Lincoln is that publicly during the election, uh, back to the Lincoln-Douglas debates during the election and after he was elected up until even his first inaugural, which I just reread, um, Lincoln is very much saying, I'm not going to interfere with slavery where it stands. Whether that's really, with the, you know, how much that was politics and how much of it was uh, is hiding a true republic commitment to the end of slavery is something we can think about. I'm currently reading um, James Oaks, very slowly rereading because I got a new job that's keeping me from reading this. But the argument of that book is Republicans pretty much from the beginning were going to move towards emancipation, regardless of, of some of these public, you know, statements that said, oh, we're not going to touch slavery where it exists or whatever. Anyways, this is basically Lincoln telling this guy, Gilmer, what are you worried about? You know, I've repeated myself again and again about this. Um, he says, quote, carefully read pages 18, 19, 74, 75, 88, 89, and 267 of the volume of the joint debates between Senator Douglas and myself with the Republican platform adopted at Chicago, and all of your questions will be substantially answered. I have no thought of recommending the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia, nor the slave trade among the slave states, even on the conditions indicated. And if I were to make such a recommendation, it'd be quite clear Congress would not follow it. Um, and he even says something about, this is a kind of interesting, because this is just a response. I don't have the original letter, but he says, as to employing slaves in arsenals and dockyards, it is a thing I never thought in my thought of in my life. So there must have been some suggestion or rumors that Lincoln was being a hypocrite, right, um, by in, in using slaves in, in arsenals. Dockyards, of course, are public federal properties, um, which, which is kind of interesting. He, he deals with some other issues, too, basically trying to reiterate his position. Um, but what I think strikes me is that the, this kind of trying to expose the Republicans as hypocritical on the issue of using slaves. Um, and to some degree, of course, you have slaves in the District of Columbia, so there might be some truth to that, but I doubt very much the Republicans would have um, used slaves the way, you know, some earlier administrations had, you know, for building the White House, for instance. So anyways, that's what we got in this short little document. Um, next, we have the New York Daily Tribune, um, same month, December 1860. Uh, this is... Um, so this is Greeley's response to a uh, another journal, the Albany Evening Journal, uh, who is a that's more of a Republican rag at the time. And Greeley, as we saw in the last episode, was saying maybe if they want to go, they have the right to go. So he was a northern newspaper, um, basically expressing a point of view that that maybe they have a right to leave. Maybe you know we shouldn't. Just assume they don't have that constitutional right to to abandon the union, um, and so we looked at the document the last time. And here Greeley again is is reass reasserting, you know, I think in more straightforward terms, the right to secede. I think in the previous article it was more, 
you know, they shouldn't, but maybe they have that right here. It's a much more open declaration that they have the right to do it. And he goes back to the Declaration of Independence, um, not the Constitution as the, the right. What's interesting about this, again, having read the first inaugural address just recently, is Lincoln also goes back to the Declaration of Independence in there, but he does it to say our union predates uh, the Constitution. So it's not even just the Constitution itself that matters. The union was already there when the Constitution was being debated. It, it was already an in, in, in unrevocable union at that point. Um, but others, and certainly many Southerners, were saying, no, the Declaration of Independence is, trumps the Constitution. And this way, and I think Greeley here seems to be saying that. Um, what else does he have here? Um, so he says, what should government do? Um, this is the other thing on policy. And he says, well, South Carolina is going to secede by this point. The writing's on the wall. Uh, there was a, and then other states are probably going to do it. So what should Congress do? And he says basically the government, or he's talking about the government, maybe the incoming Republican administration, because, uh, of course, Congress can change these laws. But he says the government should enforce the laws. Um, but, but let the secessionists go, essentially. Um, and why do this? He says, kind of, he says they, we got to avoid a war. So it's, it's a bit of a pacifist argument if you want to give it some, um, you know, to take a look at this document fairly in the best light. Is it is saying we need to like prevent a war. Um, but anyways, that's the document. So th this is, uh, I, I want, well, I'm interested in following what the New York Daily Tribune says throughout the war. Uh, is, does their opinions change or not? I'm not that familiar with Greeley's opinion. Opinions, you know, month to month, day to day, you know, as a journalist. Maybe I'll learn as I go through this series. So next we get, uh, we actually have a few dog, a few congress, congressional things going on in this section too. I didn't mention it earlier in my introduction. That's kind of another subplot of these documents is the affairs in Congress. So we get these kind of congressional speeches and, you know, they're just opinions, right? I don't know. It's probably like today that people just spoke up to express their opinion or to speak to their constituents or whatever. Maybe there was a little bit more honor back in these days where, you know, not just pandering. Uh, that You sometimes get the feeling that when you watch Congress, that just like people talking to an entry room just to put their words in the record. Not really engaging in any debate, I guess. Um, but uh, we do get a variety of opinions. Um, here and one one interesting one is a uh, Benjamin F. Wade, uh, who is uh, from Ohio, and he was a Whig and later a Republican. So this is going to be a, a strong Unionist perspective. Uh, December fifteenth, eighteen sixty. So uh, the what is his argument? So he makes the argument: there's no need for secession. Secession is not even legal if they need to. But uh, what is the what's the, the the kind of the assertive argument against secession? I suppose or for the Union. One is Lincoln's positions are non-offensive. Uh, of course, this is what Lincoln was constantly repeating to people, is that my positions, my public positions are not offensive. Of course, I guess people could always say, deep down, you know, you're this, you're abolitionist, but Lincoln never admitted that publicly. Um, so he, he, it's just sort of repeated here by, by Mr. Wade. Um, 
And then he says, we do need to make compromises. Or no, he says, sorry, sorry. He says the opposite. He says, there's no need to compromise. He basically says elections had consequences, right? This is uh, something you still hear today. When one party wins, they'll say elections have consequences. So we have a mandate to rule. That's what that means, right? We have a mandate to push through our agenda, whatever it is, despite the will of the minority. And we don't need to compromise on them. So on certain positions, the majority clearly speaks, right? And that's what he says also is like in a democracy, the there's a right of the majority to govern based on its policies that it ran on and won an election on. And that is basically Wade's argument here. And then he gets into the lack of the right of secession in general. And there was a variety of ways that people made this case, uh, as we've seen in the last documents, last last uh, episodes documents as well, but they're repeated here. Um, you know, things that there's, there's an the property relations between the federal government and the states is very complex. They're too intimately connected. This is, of course, going to be a point that Lincoln's going to make in his first inaugural address when he says, um, you know, wait a minute, if, if you secede, then, you know, the, the fugitive slave law definitely is not going to be enforced, right? If you want the fugitive slave law enforced at all, you better stay in the union, right? The right, you know, certainly a state that stays in the union doesn't have to return the slaves of a foreign power right and but the fact is slaves would still escape to the north um whether you seceded or not right and it's you know and that's just an example of how the, like the legal and institutional mesh between the north and south is really complex and it can't be really detached and physically you can't just it's not like the south can pick up and go live on the moon it's still going to be economically and physically and institutionally and culturally tied to the north um that's one way of going at it uh there's of course the legal arguments the constitutional arguments that the constitution was a binding document a contract that only could be broken up by consent of all people in the contract it could be broken but it couldn't be like rendered uh, non-existent without the consent of both sides so anyways, that's uh, some of the arguments, but he kind of reiterates some of these. But where he gets, maybe a, this document does get a little darker, I suppose, as he does have a, a position on slavery. He's acknowledging this conflict is about slavery at its roots. And he says, like, you know, first of all, people who say that we so-called black Republicans are for black equality aren't, you know, or want blacks in government that's not true we advocate colonization he says we're gonna once slaves these free blacks if, if any you know are going to be moved to you know the, we want to see slavery you know shrunk but but these free blacks that arrive out of this process will be kicked out of the country this is the old colonization argument of course um and he says, we, so sir, we will build up a nation renovated by this process of white laboring men. You may build yours up on compulsory servile labor and the two will flourish side by side. And we'll see very soon whether your principles or that of that or that state of society or, or ours is the most prosperous or vigorous, end quote. Um, so he's saying our movement, we're going to colonize our blacks, essentially, of course, is a ridiculous proposition at the time and, 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 and is now. So um still is um so that's kind of this document it's an interesting one i think because he kind of does take on this colonization argument he kind of addresses 
that it's not just a constitutional debate argument, that it really is about race to a certain degree. And he's he makes a kind of a perverse argument saying we in the North are the ones actually advocating a white republic uh, of free laboring white people. And you in the South are the ones who are are amalgamating culturally and, and racially uh, through this institution of slavery. Right. And not that that's entirely a wrong position. There were free soilers who definitely did not want black people in the frontier. And there is there was racial amalgamation in the South because of, of you know, the sexual relations between whites and blacks, you know, during slavery. Stuff we talked a lot about in our like William Wells Brown series, of course. So anyways, that's that's that. That's Wade. So um, so next we got uh, oh, John Crichton in. Um, I'm not gonna, this is a really long document, by the way. Um, it's, it is actually a huge chunk of this section. Um, this is December 18th, 1860. This is John J. Crichton's remarks to the U.S. Senate, which is basically his um, proposal. Uh, his proposing his compromise, right? And if you don't remember from your history class, the Crichton Compromise was this effort. It's even mentioned in the first inaugural too. It was uh, it was an effort to pass a constitutional amendment. It, I think it was passed by Congress, but never ratified by enough states, so it never became part of the Constitution, of course. But it was a proposed amendment or series of amendments, maybe to the Constitution. Maybe it was all in one. But basically, it would say very strongly. That federalism means the federal government can't intervene in the in the domestic institutions of states, and in particular, he's talking about slavery here. I think slavery is specifically defended in the in this amendment. Yeah, uh, that the act of the 18th of September 1850, commonly called the Fugitive Slave Law, ought to be so amended as to make the fee of the commissioner blah blah blah. The laws of the suppression of the African slave trade ought to be. Um, uh, something about the slavery. So anyways, the point here is that the, this this compromise, this amendment, not only would have made it difficult to for the federal government to intervene at all in the institution of slavery in southern states to, to the degree it had any power at all to do that, but it also writes slavery into the Constitution. I think that's the thing that historians often point out about this, um, at least at kind of the textbook level uh, of analysis is that this would have written in slavery into the Constitution for the first time um, directly in, and without ambiguity. The Constitution, of course, has slavery mentioned several times, but it's always, there's coded language, right, about importation of immigrants and things about, you know, other people, right, of course, in the Three-Fifths Compromise. In the Fugitive Slave Law, it's, it's written just as people bound to service or whatever. So slavery is not directly mentioned at any point in the document. But... Um, yeah, you got various things here. Like here, this is an article in in one of the... I guess it's two amendments, huh? Uh, one says, The Congress shall have no power to abolish slavery in places under its exclusive jurisdiction. So I think one deals explicitly saying Congress can't intervene with slavery in other domestic institutions. The second basically beefs up the future of slave law even more. So that's the Crichton Compromise. Um and the other weird thing about this amendment um, is to make it work, uh, to, to, to get the Southerners to go along with this amendment, Crichton had to make it an unamendable amendment, right? 
which I don't even know is constitutional. I mean, is any amendment unamendable? Could, could that even be written in? Because the whole point of the amendment process is the Constitution can be changed. So it's really kind of a bizarre text. Um, but, but anyways, uh, Crichton uh, made his case here uh, for it. He's obviously trying to avoid uh, a war. All right. Uh, yeah, I don't want to talk about Cri John J. Crichton anymore. I mean, I guess he, he ran for president, right? He was in that. Uh, was it the, what was his party? Oh, no, he didn't. He was nominated by the Constitutional Union Party. And, uh, but didn't, it didn't run. Because who ran on that party in 1860? Oh, John Bell. That's right, John Bell. Sorry, slipping my mind. But anyways, Crichton does have an interesting kind of history here, if you, if you look him up. Um, like his, you hear about these divided families in the Civil War, and I'm not sure how common they were, but we, we have records of these because of letters and things like that. Um, but his, he had one of these divided families where, um, where one of his sons was a general in the Confederate Army and another became a general in the Union Army. Um, so, you know, and he comes from Kentucky, so he's, uh, you know, right in the middle, right? And where you had a divided population, uh, a state that stayed in the Union, but a, a population that that certainly was sympathetic to the South and, and wanted to defend slavery. And of course, isn't Kentucky that weird place that didn't ratify the 13th Amendment until like the late 20th century or something? Obviously, they didn't have to make it law. It only took two thirds of the states to do it. But, you know, there might be something more interesting to say about Crichton at some point, in, but not today, I suppose. Um, anyways, this, this compromise... It, it was supported because it, it was seen as a way of maybe giving the South confidence. It's just I, I don't think it is likely it would have passed enough states to become law. Of course, it didn't matter because by the time anything could have come of this, secession had already taken place. You know, secession's literally right around the corner here. It only took a, a few weeks from Lincoln's election to, for, to South Carolina's secession. Um. Okay, next we have Henry Adams to his brother. Um, so these are kind of fun. There's actually, uh, I think we get a, a series of, of these letters. So the characters here, you got to know the Adams family in a way. Um, so it's John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Charles Francis Adams. Um, and Charles Francis Adams was like... Now he was newly elected as like a Republican in Congress in 1860. So he had actually served before uh, he, as a Republican in 58. Um, so at this point, he's still serving his first term, right? He was reelected in 1860, but instead he becomes like an ambassador to Great Britain, which of course is really going to be a really important role uh, during the war because keeping Britain from acknowledging, you know, recognizing the Confederacy would be a big deal during the war. Um, and this is really interesting. So part of his duties uh, included correspondence with British civilians, including Karl Marx um, and the International Workingmen's Associations, Adams and his sons, Henry Adams. So that's where this letter comes in. So this is uh, Henry Adams is serving as, um, Charles Francis Adams, his father, like personal secretary in Washington. And he's writing this letter to his brother, Charles Francis Adams Jr. So 
if all that's straight. I hope it is. So this is the fourth generation Adamses, right? So John, John Quincy, Charles, and then Charles and Henry, same generation. All right? I, I think that's right. So um, I guess, is he still in Boston? I think he's in Boston at this point. Um, but, you know, uh, he's eventually going to serve in the army and all that. The Charles Francis Adams, I mean. Um, but anyways, this what's cool about this document is you got Henry Adams writing this personal letter to his brother about how things are really going to shit in Washington. Um, you know, life in the capital. And it's quite funny at times, you know, where he says uh, that basically there's kind of this ennui and un un uncertainty and anxiety and all these different kind of conf conflicting emotions in Washington. And it's kind of made just things really slow and people are just sort of waiting for stuff to happen and not really acting because it's kind of this lame duck. It's a lame duck period, right? We dine at five and after that, I don't feel as if I wanted to run much, especially as there are no parties, no receptions. The president divides his time between crying and praying. The cabinet has resigned or else is occupied and committing treason. Some of them have done both. The people of Washington are firmly convinced that there will be an attack on Washington by the Southerners or else a slave insurrection. And in either case, or in any contingency, they're sure to be ruined and murdered. There's no money, nor much prospect of any, and all sources of income are dry, so that no one can entertain, end quote. So there's like no part nightlife in Washington anymore. That's what he's kind of commenting about. Um, but basically, his opinion when he gets to the politics of secession crisis is he's saying essentially the, the North is acting kind of weak. Um, this is a common view. We see other le letters and documents in this series commenting on this that there's kind of a just a general weakness and comp almost a, a, a inability to act in the face of of the movements of south carolina to and, and other southern states to secede and he, he's it's kind of hopeless because no one's really willing to act there's no leadership basically the, the and he even says this is really ironic considering what would happen in the civil war but he says the hero heroism of the struggle is over and i think here he's thinking of like things like kansas and the, the Sumner caning and that kind of stuff that happened earlier during the peak of the society of the sectional conflict and the highly politicized nature of it, maybe culminating in the John Brown raid. But now he says it's just sort of waiting for the other shoe to fall. Um, but anyways, I think this is kind of a fun document just because it's, of course, it's the Adamses and, and they're an important family. Um, and Henry Adams is going to be such a significant writer in the years after the Civil War. Who we should eventually get to in this series, I suppose. Um, so next, John J. Nicolay, another memorandum regarding Abraham Lincoln. We've seen him before. He was, I guess, following Lincoln around. And so he would write these journalistic reports um, about. And the first was where he was. So it's like a private moment into Lincoln's private conversations and doings and things like that. And the previous time we looked at this was way back on Election Day. Uh, which I guess is only a month and a half pre prior to this document, but that's where Lincoln was saying that like, there isn't someone we can negotiate with in the South in good faith anymore. Um, and what this is about, though, is Lincoln um, basically issuing orders to hold forts, which does he have the power to do yet? I guess he's not, but... Um, um, well, I guess he's not really ordering it, but here's what he says. So he's told Lincoln's being told of a rumor that Buchanan has sent instructions to Major Anderson to shredder Fort Montre if attacked. And Lincoln says, if that's true, they ought to hang him. 
I think Buchanan is who he's referring to. So, you know, you do see Lincoln stepping in into something that's the president's prerogative at this point because Lincoln's not been inaugurated yet. But well, we'll know, we know what happens is Anderson does surrender um, Fort Moultrie and goes to Fort Sumter. Right? That's going to be a very important decision, as we'll see in a little bit. So anyways, that's, uh, that's that. That's just a little fibnet, less than a page long. Uh, so next, we finally come to it, December 24th, 1860, the South Carolina Declaration of the Causes of Secession. So it's a, it's a fairly long document. Um, none of the arguments here will, I guess, be very surprising, but it is important, I suppose, to go through them once again. Um, so what is it? Um, well, what's the legal foundation for this document? Because this is, this is a declaration of 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 independence of sorts. So it needs to have some sort of legal foundation, at least if it's going to carry on in the spirit of the Declaration of Independence, which where Jefferson went at great lengths to uh, insist on the legal foundations of, of the Declaration of Independence, right? Um, and of course, that's going to be the heart of a lot of the back and forth here is, is this even legal? And, and of course, the position of, of the people in the Republican Party was clearly not. You got Greeley saying, well, maybe, and you got Southern secessionists, of course, uh, believing it was was legal. But you, you see here a legal foundation. Um, so what does he say? Um, well, the Declaration of Independence is sort of presented as the fundamental backbone of any legal argument uh, on the right of secession, um, basically saying, quote, that they are and of right ought to be free and independent states, and that is free and independent states. They have the Pope forward to levy low, levy war, conclude peace, conduct alliances, etc. This is the language of the Declaration of Independence, and he's just saying that we're just carrying on that right, so that our rights go back to this clause in the Declaration of Independence. Um, he also say we got some constitutional rights, which of course there's a big contradiction here because if you're going to say my constitutional rights. Give me the right to secede. Well, as soon as you secede, you no longer really have those constitutional rights anymore. I suppose it's it's uh, you're you're leaving what you say give you the rights to leave. You're you're leaving the same contract that gives you the right to do it. It's not like there is no clear opt out cause in the Constitution, is there? Um, so I don't know. Maybe there's a lot, an argument here, but it doesn't quite make sense to me. Uh, Anyways, uh, where they, he does find one is the 10th Amendment. That's the amendment that, that gives rights that aren't f listed to states. So I guess there's something to that. Um, then the other thing that really became a cause, I mean, the clearest example in the minds of Southern secessionists of the failure of the North to live up to its constitutional obligations is the Fugitive Slave Law and you know states not enforcing it. Northern states not enforcing it. Um, quote, this stipulation was so material to the compact that without it, the compact would never have been made. Here he's talking about the Constitution. The great number of the contracting parties held slaves and they previously invested their estimate of their value as such a stipulation by making it a condition in the ordinance for the government of the territory ceded by Virginia. And quote, that's of course the Northwest territories that were surrendered. Uh, and those were made as free states, right? Uh, free territories in those early, even before the Constitution, right? In the Articles of Confederation period. So he's saying that was only agreed to on the condition that the future slave would be in the Constitution. So they're saying it's essential. The Constitution wouldn't have existed without this 
clause. And so therefore that it's being tossed away by northern states is basically a nullification of the contract in the first place. Um, and of course, the argument being it's actually the northern states that are nullifying the Constitution, not us. We're just we have to leave because it's the only way to preserve our constitutional rights. Um, And then he talks about anti-slavery agitation. So it finally does become a race. And that's what I want to get to, I guess, with these documents and the conventions and the debates about the conventions is as much as there's language of these like legal arguments and states' rights in the Constitution, ultimately, at the end of the day, they resort to that is about slavery at the end, right? Um, you know, and some documents are more open about it than others. This one, actually, I was surprised that this document is like not so much about slavery as some of the others as that, that we see. And certainly the personal correspondences are the more uh, not fully public, not official, I suppose, statements, you know, letters and newspapers, speeches on the floor, those kinds of things definitely push, you know, like, oh, the Republicans want racial amalgamation. They're going to give black people the vote. What about our daughters, our are, you know, what's going to happen if blacks are free to our daughters? You know, this like weird sexual anxiety. This stuff is definitely in these debates, even if it's not so strong in this document. But it, even here it comes up where um, where he says, uh, the slaveholding states will no longer have the power of self-government or self-protection, right? And, you know, protection against what? Well, slave insurrection uh, is obviously something that's on their mind. So we're going to, I think we get others here in, in future documents that are a little bit more, more overt about the role of slavery in the decision to secede. Maybe it's the Mississippi document or the Texas one. Maybe it's the Mississippi one. Anyways, oh, next document is Abner Doubleday. So I, I was really getting excited when I read this because I thought maybe we'll find some clue uh, proving that Doubleday you know, invented baseball. Maybe there'll be a little quote about how the soldiers at Fort Moultrie were playing a game or something. Nothing like that, unfortunately. So these documents do not contribute at all to the discussion, to the debate, whether Abner, Abner Doubleday invented baseball or not. So in lieu of any conclusive i'll continue to support the hall of fame being in cooperstown anyways to this document though this is i didn't even know this document existed to be honest um it's reminiscence of fort sumter and moultrie so he was there so abner doubleday was serving um at fort moultrie in charleston harbor in 58 and he continued to serve when the secession crisis began so he's talking about this. He's serving under Anderson. And Anderson, of course, was the commander of this federal garrison there. And they relocated in the winter of 1860, 1861 to Fort Sumter. Um, basically, the reason why is it was seen as that it would be more easily to be secured. Um, and and of course, there's politics in here. We saw Lincoln already saying that like, we shouldn't surrender any forts at all because this is federal property and we shouldn't just surrender it without a fight. And and that's essentially what Anderson does. Of course, he does defend Fort Sumter to a degree, right? 
uh, not to the last man or anything. I think was, were there, there weren't even that many casualties in that battle. But um, as I recall, I think Lincoln was a bit not entirely happy with the nature of the surrender or something. Well, maybe I'll come back to this. But anyways, what we have here is basically it's a narrative of Anderson's decision to go to Fort Sumter. Um, and what he was... And, and there's some interesting things here, like Anderson feeling he had this kind of burden because he he's from revolutionary stock. Quote, he felt as if he had a hereditary right to be there, for his father has distinguished himself in the Revolutionary War in defense of Old Fort Montreal against the British, and he had been confined as a long-term prisoner in Charleston. Um, so there's some hesitation for Anderson of, of moving, but Anderson was being told by people, and it sounds like Buchanan was part of this, right? Um, maybe some expert on this, the, the details of this can let me know. But it sounds like Buchanan was the one saying maybe you should withdraw from this fort, which is, of course, what led Lincoln to say we should hang him. I think referring to Buchanan, not, not Anderson. But anyways, why do this? And, and Abner Doubleday talks quite a lot about just the secessionist temper in South Carolina at the time in Charleston. Quote, up to this time, we had hoped, almost against hope, that even if the government were base enough to desert us, the loyal spirit of the patriotic North would manifest itself in our favor insomuch as our little forces represented the supremacy of the Constitution and the laws. But all seemed doubt, apathy, and confusion there. Yancey was delivering lectures in the Northern States as a representative of the disunionist, not only without molestation, but with frequent and vivacious applause from the democratic masses who cannot be made to believe there's any danger. So there was like a context to this decision to relocate in that it felt this was a lost battle already, which I guess Lincoln would think, yeah, nevertheless, you have to defend this federal property. Uh, it's, it's in his first inaugural, right? Is that we're going to defend every, every fort, uh, as necessary at the, at the time that southern states were after they seceded seizing federal territory and armories and and property all over the place so anyways then we get the the discussion of actually the withdrawal so this if you're interested in that part of the story of fort sumter which i guess not many people are that aware of they know maybe fort sumter but they don't know about this shifting of the of the garrison to there um it's here and it's abner doubleday who who may or may not have invented baseball Now, the next document picks up right after this. It's Catherine Edmondson uh, from her diary of December 26, 27, talking about the same events, but from a different point of view. So she's a, um, a Southerner, obviously. Um, so a, her husband is a plantation owner. Um, so in North Carolina, but she had she was visiting her family in South Carolina at the time. So what's key about this is kind of like, it's obviously an elite point of view. Um, Edmondson is not lower class white, and I, I'm still kind of waiting for maybe some more lower class white points of views here. Hopefully they'll include, maybe once we get soldiers, we'll, we'll see that. But she's not from that, so she's, she's definitely pro-secession here. But what she's saying, which is kind of funny, give, given that secession already happened and they already declared themselves a... A foreign country um, so what would you expect but she's kind of saying oh the federal government promised us that they wouldn't like do anything aggressive but they're moving their troops around that they, they they promise no change and here they are shifting troops around from this fort to that fort that's aggressive that's an attack it's a threat you know that's kind of her attitude here um, 
So she says, um, where is it exactly? It's kind of like this. Uh, here, here. We pray God that Mr. Buchanan would quietly withdraw the troops from Sumter. Let South Carolina peacefully go her own way. Perhaps after a little, when she sees that Mr. Lincoln does not meddle with slavery, she may return. And the threat and dismemberment of the country may be prevented. So that's kind of interesting that there is maybe among some supporters of secession um, an idea that this is just, you know, we had to follow through on our threats to force the Republicans to uh, not intervene with, not interfere with slavery. That, of course, was some of the earlier arguments we read, like right after the election. Some people were saying we need to move now because only by moving now can we stop the Republicans from pursuing their radical agenda. Um, and even after secession, Edmondson here seems to think that might be the case. All right, so moving on. I actually stopped recording for a while because that damn garbage truck, Taiwan garbage truck, came by. I live here on the, like, like the 14th floor, and I can still hear it. I don't know. I have It's a noisy city I live in, unfortunately. Um... Anyways, next document we have is Stephen Hale to this guy, Mag Magofin. So Stephen Hale was the, what was he? Stephen Hale was from Mississippi, I think. No, Alabama. So he was a, a, legislature from Al a legislator from Alabama, and he's writing to the state governor of, uh, of Kentucky. Um, and trying to encourage secession. So these documents are really interesting. This is one of a whole set of of these kind of uh, missionary type of documents, secessionist missionary texts, where they're trying, you know, people from the deep south are trying to convince the border states and, you know, in Virginia and Tennessee and Kentucky and Missouri and those places to secede. And, of course, some of them would and, and others wouldn't. And Kentucky is one that, that wouldn't, although it's probably the most divided of the border states. Uh, Anyways, uh, so this kind of document is important because they're talking amongst slave states. It's not, they're not so much presenting this legalistic argument you got in the South Carolina uh, Declaration of Secession. Um, you know, so what do we have here? Um, obviously, a lot of language of, of states' rights here and a lot of the language of the Declaration of Independence, which is pretty common throughout these texts, I, I see coming up again and again. Of course, you can't break away from the Constitution and then lay, make your claim based on the Constitution. Right? You have to go to something more fundamental, and that becomes the, the Declaration of Independence, which seems to offer up this equality of states and it being more of a loose compact of states, not a you know not one single country. Um, but where he gets, I think, interesting for, for our purposes is when he starts talking about slavery as, as really a root fundamental institution of america which um of course is what critical race theorists say right that's the the, the argument of people who you know want to say look we can't ignore slavery we need to have things like reparations it's really built into our national fabric and i think that's true um here but here you have a, a a southerner a slaveholder someone trying to defend the institution of slavery to to such an extreme that he's supporting secession, saying slavery is this at the root of, of America, North and South. It's really something that can't be separated from it. Um, 
And there's a lot of overt race talk in this this document, which I, I think, of course, is how we should look at these debates, is that whatever garnish they put around it, legalistic garnish, it was ultimately a fear about the end of slavery and what that would mean for their status as, you know, it's in a hair-invoked democracy, right? Uh, hair-invoked democracy uh, being a, so that's a term historians have used, right, to mean a white supremacist democracy, a democracy for white men. Um, here's what he writes. What Southern men, be he slaveholder or non-slaveholder, can without, without indignation and horror contemplate the triumphs of Negro equality and see his own sons and daughters in the not distant future associating with free Negroes upon terms of political and social equality and the white man stripped by the heaven-daring hand of fanaticism of that tie to superiority over the black race which God himself has bestowed. In the northern states where free Negroes are so few as to form no appreciable part of the community, in spite of all the legislation for their protection, they still remain a degraded caste, excluded by the ban of society from social association with all but the lowest and most degraded of the white race. But in the south, where in many places the African race largely predominates, and as a consequence, the two races would continually be pressing together amalgamation or the extermination of the one or the other would be inevitable. Can Southern men submit to such degradation and ruin? God forbid that they should. So not any, no garnish there. I mean, it's a straight up document saying we're doing this to save white civilization and uh, white supremacy. Um, and then there's a lot here also about just the aggression of the Republicans and the North in general. So that's their argument. But I think the racial component of this text is good at, at cutting through the bullshit of, of some of these texts that, that we've been looking at that, that try to paint secession as something other than a defense of, of white supremacy. Um, next, we got a nice little poem, Herman Melville's. Uh, this is from... Uh, Battle Pieces and, and the Aspects of the War, which is his book of poetry that comes out of the Civil War. And it's just, uh, it's really about the, you know, the origin of the conflict and the, the mood of the conflict, I suppose. So it's, it's just a little poem um, kind of presenting a storm brewing, right? That's, that's the metaphor, the symbolism that Melville uses in that little poem. All right, but not much to say about it, I suppose. Um, next we have a uh, C Mary Jones to C uh, Charles C Jones. This is another, this is another, uh, Southern woman writing. I, I don't know. We've only seen Southern women really so far. Um, in the few fem documents by women we've had so far, they're both Southerners and they're both of the planter class. Um, but she's, uh, so she's living with her husband, uh, who is a clergyman, uh, in Georgia. And her, their son was in, in a lawyer in Savannah. So she's writing to her son in, in Savannah. And basically, this is about uh, the need for secession as well. This is another uh, personal document, a, a letter in which you see support at, at, you know, being spread by, before it was more of a public document, a, a legislator to a governor. This is a mother to her son. But it's at the same tone. It's saying, we need to get on board this. There's a little bit of sadness about the fate of the Union here, um, but ultimately it's saying uh, you, need to, you need to suit up a little bit. You need to suit up and be ready for this because um, it has to be done. 
so next, uh, more another Henry Adams to uh, Charles Francis Adams. So this, these brotherly letters. Um, and Henry Adams here just says there's going to be very, very, there's going to basically no hope that secession can be avoided or war can be avoided at this point. So again, it's kind of carrying on the previous document we've seen by Henry Adams. That one was a little bit more uh, absurdist in its tone. Like just things are going, went from being heroic and epic and confrontational to just sort of being waiting for the South to do something. Uh, that kind of very lame duck feel. Uh, this document is, is much more urgent, I, I suppose. Um, quote, this is solemn, but I have enough self-respect to keep me from joining with anybody and men who act from mere passion and the sense of wrong. Don't trust yourself to that set, for they'll desert you when you need their support. They don't know what they're after. Support any honorable men of consolation, uh, is his opinion. So he's not, he's not ready to, to, to fall into passions yet, I guess he's saying. Um, so what do we have yet? A few more documents. Let's, um, actually a handful more. Uh, all right. Next we have the Mississippi Declaration of Causes of Secession. And I, I, I'm interested in this document because it is much more upfront about the role of race in the decision to secede. I mean, basically the second paragraph starts like this. Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery the greatest material interest of the world. Its labor supplies the product which constitute by far the largest and most important portions of the commerce of the earth, end quote. Now, of course, this is part of the argument Southerners had to saying why secession could be possible. So we have the most important thing in the world, cotton. You know, no one else can replace it. And it turns out the British were able to replace it pretty easily, Southern cotton, you know, in India and in, in Egypt and places like that. But this is what they really believed would be the, would lead to their success but also that he's so open about it saying like not only is slavery the fundamental institution of our society it's crucial it's the fundamental foundation of the world economy which again i think there's some truth in that uh to a degree but um you know as it'd be proven not to be as quite go as far as some southerners believed it, it could and then when he talks about the Republican crimes, he says it advocates to hear the Republican Party. It advocates Negro equality socially and politically and promotes insurrection and incendiarism in our midst. Um, it's made combinations of formed associations to carry out its schemes of emancipation in the states wherever slavery exists. It does not seek to elevate. It seeks not to elevate or to support the slave, but to destroy his present condition without providing a better. Um, so a lot of racial language here. And then utter subjugation awaits us in the Union. So we'll lose our white supremacy. So the next we get Elizabeth Blair Lee writing to her husband, Samuel Phillips Lee, who's off at sea. So what's cool about this document is she's sort of updating him on all the politics. The very uh, things were changing very fast. So someone at sea maybe wouldn't get all the up to date information. She's updating them on that. Um, and now she's from Maryland, but they're Republicans. So it's a. Uh, I guess now we finally got a letter by a document by a woman who's from a more northern perspective, even though she's she's from Maryland. Um, but she seems firmly Republican. Um, but she's saying thing, you know, well, what does she write? Uh, Patriotism is now above par. The Union flag streams from nearly every housetop. Father returned home from the city last night, singing and happy about politics, and I've seen him since the election. Still, he and all thinking men are sure that peaceful secession is fallacy. So this idea that war is coming, 
I guess is what we see in this document and that there's some urgency and even excitement about um, this. Um, next, we have another diary from Catherine Edmondson. This one from January 1861. Now, like with the other documents we got from her, she's providing not only a Southern elite perspective on secession and support for it, but kind of it's more useful, I guess, as the eye, as the eyes on the ground about the, you know, the happenings in Charleston, which is of course where the Civil War would begin. That's why we're here and focusing on this document. And that's kind of what we get here. Her, her, her the day-to-day recollections of of what happened at men are on the street and and this uh you know the talk around the town i guess in the midst of this and the fears about buchanan betraying them and the, the movement of troops being a an aggressive action against the south but there's there's this idea of this changing situation in, in south carolina and particularly charleston um there and then really generally her final thought in this diary entry is the intrusion of politics into personal life, into private life, which, of course, I think is to some degree what is going to undo the Confederacy ultimately is going to be. It's one thing to talk about, you know, patriotism, Southern patriotism and, and all this and being pro-secession in 1861. But a few years into the war, you're going to have people who find what it really means to have politics intrude on their private lives when they start writing to their sons and husbands to come home and encouraging desertion and things like that. And of course that's going to plague the Southern army in its, in its final years. Um, so this is followed by uh, Jefferson Davis's farewell to the Senate, which is pretty boring stuff, to be honest. I can't, I don't know what was so attractive about Jefferson Davis as a politician. Uh, he would of course be elected, um, president of the Confederacy not long after this, but this is just his farewell speech, and it's pretty mundane stuff. He's just saying, "Well, now that uh, now that Mississippi left the Union, I I guess I really can't be here anymore, so I'm going to leave." And then he he gives he defends secession, of course, but he kind of talks about it in a very neutral way, just as you know, this is what my state wants, and I'm a representative of a state that made this decision. So blah blah blah. Uh, then we have uh, Robert E. Lee to George Washington Curtis Lee, um, who is his son. Um, and we all know Robert E. Lee was somewhat reluctant. He, he was not really for secession until Virginia seceded, and then he, he, he opted to support his state. Um, here he's saying, you know, this is leading to civil war and anarchy. No lies there, I suppose. Secession is nothing but revolution. The framers of our Constitution never exhausted so much labor, wisdom, and forbearance in its formation and surrounded with so many guards and securities if it was intended to be broken by every member of the Confederacy at will. It was intended for perpetual union, end quote. So that's what he thought in, in January. You know, his opinion would change reluctantly by uh, within a few months of this. Uh, so next we have uh, Jefferson Davis's inaugural address. Again, pretty boring stuff. Jefferson Davis is not a very inspiring public speaker from what I have read here. Um, anyways, I'm not going to say too much about it. Uh, and then finally, we have Frederick Douglass's March 1861 letter in his own personal monthly newspaper. Is Douglass Monthly, he called it. He named it after himself. Uh, where he gives some reflections on on Lincoln. He calls it the new president, but of course Lincoln hadn't served a single day yet. 
Um, so there's a lot of hope here, though, that see that that Lincoln has stood stood by his position on not expanding slavery and and not surrendered that in the hopes of keeping the southern states in the union and so this gives douglas some hope that lincoln may have enough metal to actually serve the needs of you know to 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 be an ally at least of some sort to to the abolitionists um he's still got his hesitations and things but he is hopeful so this document shows some hope that that lincoln may be uh, the real deal. So that's it. That's uh, what I have for you today. I, I kind of rushed it at the end. Uh, I also sort of ran on my notes, but that's okay. Um, things are going to get exciting in the next batch of articles and documents, which will take us from uh, Lincoln's inaugural address. That's what we'll start with. To I, let's let's say to the um, Baltimore riot. Let's let's go through that to the Baltimore riot of April. Um, and we got some eyewitness accounts of that. So that's what's coming up. Um, um, I guess not really, not quite to the fighting yet. That's going to be, uh, maybe a couple episodes out, but still a lot of, uh, interesting politics. I think the, the firing of Fort Sumter happens in, in this next period too. So, uh, the official beginning of the civil war, at least will, will come, even if the big battles will have to wait a little bit. But that's it for now. So uh, thanks, as always, for listening. Um, I have a new microphone now, so I'm in a hopefully sounding much clearer. I've had microphone issues for a while, but I finally was able to to get myself a new microphone. I'm quite pleased about it. Uh, I'm going to be playing with the settings here and there to see what's best. But um, at the very least, it should be much clearer and uh, hopefully less background noise and things like that and power issues I was having with my old snowball. So anyways, that's uh, the good news. And the good news is, uh, you know, we're in the beginning of a new and for me exciting series. So um, thanks uh, for listening. Let me know what you think about any of this stuff. Um, and I'll see you next time as we, we witness the firing on Fort Sumter in the beginning of the With his 19 men so true, he frightened old Virginia till she trembled through and through. They hanged him for a traitor, they themselves the traitor crew. His soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul.